have a great time. <laughs> it's, the problem is Tracy. You know, he has that booming voice. And when he gets to going and the guys around him look out, you may as well just leave the room so you can talk. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I'm thankful to be here. Thankful for your gracious hospitality. Always so kind. I want to say special thank you to Willis and Philip for those great messages yesterday. Stirred my heart. A real blessing. Romans 12 and 14. And uh, give me a lot to think about on my way home. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, a familiar text and a profound text. I have so much enjoyed this text of Scripture, and God continues to teach me things from it. Philippians chapter 3, our text will be verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And would you read verse 14 out loud with me? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Sesame Street first aired on November 10th, 1969. The reason why I know that is because I saw that first episode in my kindergarten classroom. I was five years old. They rolled a television into our classroom, and we watched the entire first episode. How well I remember it. But you know, that's about all I remember from kindergarten. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> in fact, kindergarten's rather insignificant to me at this stage of my life. But do you know, when I completed kindergarten that year, and I marched across the platform and received my diploma as a little five-year-old, I thought I knew everything in the world, because I had a diploma. But when I ended up in the first grade, just a few months later, I realized very quickly that there was a whole lot more to learn in life. First grade material was a whole lot more difficult than the cut and paste and coloring of kindergarten. But at the end of first grade, I had mastered the subject matter, and I was ready for second grade. I thought I knew everything, again. But then I got into second grade and realized, oh, I don't know everything. And I had to learn all of that curriculum, and then I mastered that after the second grade, and then the third grade, the same thing, and on and on it goes all through life. But by the time I finished high school, I had learned enough to know that although I had mastered all the grades through high school, I still had more to learn in life. <laughs> and the same is true when I finished college and grad school, but we never fully master life, do we? In fact, we don't even come close. But you've mastered kindergarten, I hope, and all the grades in between, up to high school at least, but 
If you're humble, you realize you have so much more to learn in life. We all do. The same is true spiritually. And that is Paul's point in our text. When we experience God in His Word and in the practical things of life, we gain knowledge. The Greek word is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, if you put it into English word letters. That's experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. As it says in verse number 8, which I did not read in our text, it says, the excellency of the knowledge, gnosis, of Christ Jesus my Lord. When we take in some knowledge about God, we might tend to feel like the kindergartner, like we know everything about God. Well, we might, at the kindergarten level, we have epinosis, which is the Greek word for mature knowledge, but only at the kindergarten level. You understand what I'm saying? When you get to the point where you've mastered the kindergarten level of the Bible, then you have epinosis. You have mature knowledge at that level. But then God introduces us to the first grade, scripturally speaking, and we realize how little we know. And so this gnosis process, knowing more about God and his words, starts all over again. And we experience God in bigger and better ways. And in time, that becomes epinosis, full knowledge, at the first grade level. And to the extent that we continue in this upward spiral in life, we will grow spiritually and we will mature and come into conformity to Jesus Christ. Paul is being very humble in this passage. In fact, we did not look at the first several verses, but he says, you know, I had the best of learning, I had this and that, but I've learned it means nothing. What means everything is Jesus. Paul's being very humble here, not like the graduating kindergartner who thinks he knows it all, but like the starting first grader who realizes he doesn't know it all. And he cries out in verse 10, Oh, that I may know him. The Greek word is gnosis. As if to say, Oh, that I may experience Jesus in a deeper, fuller way. I have so much to learn. Do you share that sentiment? I do. I want to know Jesus. I have so much to learn about him. Well, in the message this morning... We're going to discover the goal of the Christian life as taught in this text. And then we're going to also discover the means by which we reach the goal, just according to this text. Now, you can go to a lot of texts of scriptures and look at it from different angles, but we're just going to focus on this text and we'll look at another, a couple of other passages of scripture to help emphasize the point. Let me give you the goal right up front, found right here in our text. And I should forewarn you, it's one goal, but it's stated in four different ways in this text. Look at me at verse number 11. What's the goal in verse number 11? Well, it's attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Whatever that means, we'll look at it later in the message. Number two, in verse number 14, what is the goal? The goal is the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus whatever that means. Number three, in verse number eight, the goal is winning Christ. 
which really means gaining Christ. And number four in verse number nine, the goal is being found in him. So let's drop back and reconsider this. The goal of the Christian life, according to this text, is attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It is the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It is winning Christ, or we could say gaining Christ. And number four, it is being found in him. And what's another way of saying that? Being rewarded positively at the Bema seat. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the goal of the Christian life. And by the way, that is not a selfish thing. Because the scripture is very clear that that is how Jesus is ultimately glorified. By bringing many sons unto glory. So we should be delighted. And we should never feel like we're being selfish if we desire to earn rewards. Because Jesus wants us to earn rewards. Because that is how he is ultimately glorified. When his children are positively rewarded to rule with him, and to glow with his brightness throughout eternity. If you qualify to rule together with Jesus, then you have glorified him by your life. And as you can see from this marvelous passage of Scripture, that is the apostle's passion. Is that your passion? Do you sense the intensity of verse 10? Oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Is that your heart cry? If not, maybe there's some coldness going on in your heart. You say, well, how do I remedy that? Get on your face before God and say, oh God, I'm cold. Spark a life in me, Holy Spirit of God who lives within me. Don't leave me alone. Now, he'll never leave you or forsake you, but sometimes I think he leaves us alone when we resist him. He says, okay, I'll just retreat here into the recesses of your, your spirit and you can go ahead and live as you want to live. But, you know, when you come before the Holy Spirit, before God, and you say, Lord, I'm cold, I'm lifeless, I'm barren, I need life, spark it in me. I believe he delights in that if you're sincere. So is this your passion? Well, let's continue in our discussion this morning as to the means of reaching this goal. That's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. And in this particular passage we find two primary ways to meet the goal. Two means to the goal. We find the first means in verse number 10, and I've already quoted it at least twice, that I may know him. So the first means to the goal is knowing him. Now a moment ago we noticed from verse 8 that Paul is focused on the excellency. That literally means the surpassing beauty and value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. In verse number 8, which we looked at briefly, the excellency of the knowledge there, that word knowledge is gnosis, it's the noun form, but in verse 10 we find the verb form, gnosko. Paul's desire is to get to know Jesus more and more. Vine's expository dictionary points out that to know is to come to understand completely, and in this case, it indicates definiteness. It's experiential knowledge, as I said earlier, and it involves depth of knowledge. Some of you know Marty Cawley, who's written a number of books about the kingdom, and I've read a number of his things, and he said, and I quote, "...all believers know Christ as Savior." 
But only mature believers truly know him as Lord. And it's the same Greek word there. It may help to understand that this very Greek word is used in the Septuagint of Adam. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, when it says he knew his wife and she conceived. Well, I think you can see from that it implies a closeness, a very intimate knowledge. Maybe I could illustrate this way. When I was a child growing up in my parents' home, I obviously knew my parents. I lived with them. They cared for me. But I knew them in a very rudimentary way. Through the years, as I grew older and more mature, I came to know my parents in a deeper, more intimate and experiential way. Now that I'm an adult son, 54 years old, and my parents much older than that, of course, and as a husband and father myself, I know my parents much more deeply, and I have a much greater appreciation for them. And so it ought to be, in a spiritual sense, with Jesus. Through the years, we should come to know him in a deeper, more intimate way, so that we become adult sons, mature in fellowship. Sadly, so many Christians remain like little children in their relationship with Jesus. They never grow to adult status, which means they really do not know him. Knowing Jesus, by the way, is not the same as knowing about him. You recognize the difference, of course. I knew a great deal about my dear wife, Leslie, long before we were ever married, and vice versa. In fact, through communication, we learned a great deal about each other. You know, that was in the era before cell phones, and we ran up a pretty hefty phone bill. You remember when they used to bill you by the minute? <laughs> and we wrote a whole lot of letters. Well, we got to know a whole lot about each other that way. But after we were married, and through more than three decades of marriage now, we've been married 32 years, we have truly grown to know and love each other in a much deeper way. And that just continues. It's wonderful. And so it should be with Jesus. You can only get to know Jesus to the extent that you spend time communicating with him. You need to read his word. You need to pray. You need to learn to trust him in everything. Now, this might help. Paul goes on in verse 10 to tell us two areas in which we should get to know Jesus if we would reach the goal of the Christian life. And what are those two areas in which we should get to know him? Well, look at verse 10 again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. How can we know the power of his resurrection? Isn't that a great mystery known only to the Godhead? Well, no. <laughs> it's readily available to all children of God. Bookmark our passage here in Philippians 3, and go with me, please, to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. Romans chapter 6. We're going to find here the heart of the Christ life, as I call it. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, 
that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me explain this. When you were saved by believing on Jesus Christ for eternal life, you were baptized, literally immersed into the death of Jesus. That's what this passage says. I don't believe this passage is referring directly to water baptism. I believe this is a reference to the spiritual baptism into the body of Christ. Now, maybe there's a water baptism application, but I don't believe that's the main intent of the passage. You were immersed by the Holy Spirit into the death of Jesus, but just as Jesus was raised up from the dead, so you have been raised up from spiritual deadness to walk in newness of life. Just as he arose, you arose in him. You've not only been released from sin's penalty, you have been freed from sin's power. What a magnificent truth. Look at verse 14. Sin does not rule you. Sin is powerless to rule you. If sin does rule in your life, it's because you have allowed it to do so. But sin has no authority in your life anymore. You have a new master, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that being the case, you do not have to submit to sin. Your new master will enable you to walk in victory over sin if you will depend upon him and his Holy Spirit on a daily basis. So verse 11 urges us to reckon it to be so. In other words, after he stated all these truths here, Paul says, reckon it. I have a degree in finance in my background, and I spent about 10 years in the corporate world in various financial roles, and, and I know that this is a financial term. To reckon it means to do the accounting, take the inventory, come to realize that you're no longer under sin's stranglehold. Do the math, we might say. Read this truth. Don't ignore it. Add it up. It's significant to you. Apply it to your life. Don't let it go. The resurrected life is a life of victory. If you're floundering in defeat, that's not the normal Christian life. You know, I think we have accepted normality in the Christian life as surprised by an occasional victory but living typically in defeat day by day. Well, that's not the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life, according to the Word of God, is living in victory, surprised by some occasional defeats. <laughs> we need to have patterns of victory rather than patterns of defeat. And that is very possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 4, just a page over, if you look at it, says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You can obey God. It's not impossible. You can obey Him to the extent that you will walk in the Spirit and not in your flesh. And that just means give yourself over to His control. Let Him rule in your life. 
And to the extent that you are appropriating Christ's righteousness in your resurrected life to conquer sin, you will come to know Jesus in a greater, deeper way. You will be fulfilling the goal of the Christian life. By the way, Romans 6, 7, and 8 is summed up well in one verse, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In one verse, that is a summary of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Come to know the power of Christ's resurrection, Paul says in Philippians 3. That's what I want to do. I want to know about that victorious resurrection power. If you want to be rewarded at the Bema seat, that ought to be your passion too. Living the resurrected life every day. Because, folks, is it not sickening when we live in defeat? The flesh fails. The flesh stinks. We don't have to live in that power. We can live in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has given us resurrection power. And Paul says, I want to know that. I want to experience that. And I think we would all say, amen. We do too. Well, let's go back now to Philippians chapter 3. And look at the other thing that Paul wants to know in verse 10. The fellowship of his sufferings. Ah, the word fellowship, here it is again. I defined it the other night. Very simply, it means sharing or participating in. In other words, Paul says, I want to endure my sufferings for Jesus as he endured his sufferings and thereby become conformable to his death. So let's personalize this. If this is your passion, then in your heart you should be saying, I want to, in every trial, in every difficulty in life, I want to endure my sufferings for Jesus with the same spirit that he endured his for me. And thereby I'll become conformable to his death. That is, assimilate his death by suffering. Experience his life of submission amid suffering. Vincent, the Greek scholar, said, and I quote, the most radical conformity is thus indicated, not merely undergoing physical death like Christ, but conformity to the spirit and temper, the meekness and submissiveness of Christ to his unselfish love and devotion and his anguish over human sin, end quote. That needs to be our attitude as we go through the trials of life and the sufferings and the persecution that you will face for Jesus. How often, when trials come along, do we get upset? Ah, I can't believe that happened to me. We get angry. We may doubt that God loves us anymore. Oh, a whole range of emotions we could have. Some people even stop serving the Lord when difficulties come along, if they're especially hard. Well, that is not the spirit of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, is it? No. To know the fellowship of his sufferings is to say, Lord, this is very hard. Losing this loved one, or losing my job, or this financial crisis, or this health crisis, it's incredibly difficult. Oh, but I want to respond as Jesus. Enable me, Lord. Your spirit lives in me. May I, by faith, live the resurrected life here and have your spirit exude from me. 
In Romans 8 and verse 17, we looked at this the other night, Paul said that we could become joint heirs with Christ, that means rulers together with him, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And I pointed out, and I'll do it again, that that doesn't mean we suffer in the same way that he suffered. It just means in whatever way he allows you to suffer, that you endure it with the same spirit that he endured his. And if you will, and if that becomes your consistent pattern in life, you will one day rule with him. It's beautiful. No wonder Paul said that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, because it's the pathway to glorification and ruling. In 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul put it this way, If we suffer, and the word literally means endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now that passage is not talking about denying you eternal life. That's not the context. You're eternally secure. That passage is talking about denying you reward, the privilege of ruling with him. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. What then is the purpose or the ultimate goal of knowing him? Why should we strive to know his resurrection power, his abundant life, we might say? And why should we strive to know his suffering by participating in it? Well, verse 11 tells us, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, that's a bizarre statement, at least if you hold to the old paradigm. Look at the word attain. Vincent said that word means to arrive at as if at a goal. But this attainment in the context here is on the basis of doing things. Did you notice that? It's on the basis of you taking the effort to get to know Jesus in a mature sense and appropriating the power of his resurrection and submitting to his sufferings. So by resurrection of the dead in verse 11, Paul cannot be referring to the rapture. For the rapture is automatic for all saints. You don't attain to the rapture. By the way, there were some men in the 19th century who taught that you do attain to the rapture, and they taught something called a partial rapture, which would only be for the faithful. I don't believe that view is scriptural. If all saints will be raptured, then why would Paul desire to attain to the resurrection from the dead by doing things? Incidentally, virtually all commentaries ignore this question, and they teach that Paul was talking about the rapture. Well, that doesn't fit the paradigm too well, does it? If you hold to the paradigm that all saints are raptured, then how can you say that this passage is talking about the rapture because it includes doing things? You know, all those that, that we know who are our uh, fellow servants who hold to that old paradigm, uh, that way of thinking that all saints will be rewarded at the judgment seat, those that hold to that, uh, they believe that all saints will be raptured, but they also would say that salvation is by faith alone. So now they, gotta, they have an inconsistency because this passage is teaching that you have to do something to be raptured. You follow me? Do you have to do something to be raptured? No, that's part of our eternal security. That's part of what the Scripture teaches all saints will experience. 
The rapture is not earned. It's automatic for all saints. But what Paul describes here is something earned, something achieved. Now, further adding to this understanding is the definition given in BDAG, the Greek lexicon. They say that the Greek term translated attain unto can be used as a technical term for the inheritance that comes to an heir. Aha. Now again, this inheritance cannot be referring to our automatic inheritance as sons of God. It's the conditional inheritance offered to those who suffer with Jesus. They will be co-heirs with him. Plainly put, they'll rule together with him and others will not. This is Paul's hope in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He desires to attain to inherit the resurrection from the dead. And it's the result of doing something. So it cannot be referring to the rapture. The key to unlocking this mystery is understanding the Greek word for resurrection. All throughout the Bible, the New Testament, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, from which the Russians, by the way, got the popular name for the girls in the 20th century, Anastasia. The word Anastasis is used here in our text too. Look back at verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his Anastasis, resurrection. But in verse 11, he changes up. He uses a different Greek term. He puts a prefix in front of Anastasis. It's ex-Anastasis. And this is the only time in the Bible that this particular Greek word is used. Huh. Interesting. Well, what's the difference between anastasis and ex-anastasis? And I should point out that many commentators say there's essentially no difference. They're synonyms. And I say, bah, humbug. That's not true. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have just used anastasis. Anastasis simply means resurrection. However, ex-anastasis, because of the prefix, takes on a different meaning. Many good commentators will point this out. It means out-resurrection. Now, again, commentators don't point out this nuance of the word, but I ask, why would Paul bother to use anastasis in verse 10 and ex-anastasis in verse 11 unless he intended something different in verse number 11, which is what he intends. Also, I might ask, what is this out-resurrection in light of the context which clearly implies that it's something inherited for knowing Christ intimately. This out-resurrection is for those who experience his resurrection power. They live the abundant life of Jesus here and now, and they suffer for him with his spirit. Most saints, of course, do not live in this manner. Thus, they will not experience the out-resurrection. What is the out-resurrection? Well, we don't know all the details but we do know that it is a matter of reward for those who qualify. And we know somehow that it's tied up with the prize of the high calling, literally the upward call of God in verse 14. So it's a prize to be won. It's a reward to be inherited. Now, I have an idea as to what it could be, but I cannot be dogmatic about this. This is just my surmising. Here's what I think. Maybe you can share with me what you think after the message. I'd like to hear that. I think at the judgment seat, those who hear the words, well done, 
will be instantly transported, out-resurrected, to their new ruling assignments in the New Jerusalem. Thus they will be out-resurrected from amongst the resurrected saints. So this is a resurrection out from amongst the resurrected saints. Now again, I can't prove the details, but really the details are immaterial. The point is, Paul here earnestly hopes to be part of the out-resurrection as a matter of reward. So it's something other than the rapture. And you should desire this too. But it's contingent on knowing Jesus intimately and living that resurrected life and dealing with your sufferings in the manner in which Christ dealt with his. Well, on that basis, would you qualify? Let's put it this way. On that basis, would you qualify today? If the rapture were to happen right now, or you were to die and to slip out eternity today, would you qualify to be out-resurrected at the Bema seat because of being heartily rewarded? Well, if not, there's still time for you. You're still living and breathing. This is glorious. This is glorious material. I, I just I revel in this. In our first point, we have seen that the goal is the out-resurrection. And that means, and the means is knowing Christ. Now, another way of stating the goal of the Christian life is found in verse 14. Winning the prize. And the means of reaching the goal is found in verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read those verses. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So number two, the second means of attaining the goal is pressing toward perfection. Though Paul's hope is to attain or inherit the out-resurrection, he humbly admits here in verse 12, he has not yet attained. But he uses a different word here in verse 12 than he had used in verse number 11 for attained. Here the word means to get hold of. In other words, Paul realizes that he is not yet in possession of. He has not taken possession of the inheritance. He has to continue to qualify for that goal by knowing Jesus. He's not reached perfection. He says so. You all know, of course, that perfection is not sinlessness. It is maturity or completeness reaching the goal of sanctification that Jesus has for you. And that results from submitting to God's sanctifying work in your life. And Paul says, I'm not there yet. And I'm sure we would say the same. I'm not there yet, but I want to attain to that out-resurrection. I want to be rewarded with the prize of the high calling. I'm not there yet. Now, if Paul wants to reach the goal, the prize of the high calling, then he realizes he must pursue the means of getting there. And what is it? Pressing on to perfection. Notice in verse number 12, he says, I follow after. The same Greek words are used at the beginning of verse 14, but translated as, I press. 
The word means to pursue after. Paul recognized his need to pursue after perfection, and in so doing, he was pursuing after the prize. Well, I'm sure you have the same question I do. How do we pursue after perfection? Well, the verse tells us, by apprehending that for which you have been apprehended of Jesus Christ. Okay, what does it mean to be apprehended? (laughs) Just break the law, you'll find out. (laughs) My father was a Chicago police commander for 33 years before he retired, and he apprehended a whole lot of people. When a policeman apprehends a criminal, he seizes the person and takes them into possession. And that is what the word means. To seize, to take into your possession. At the beginning of verse 13, the Apostle Paul humbly admits that he is not yet seized and taken into his possession perfection. Maturity to the goal. And therefore, he has not yet seized the prize. Well, how do you seize perfection and thereby seize the prize? He tells us in the verse, by forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. To forget, of course, is to choose to put something out of your mind. It doesn't mean that you'll never remember it again. It just means you choose not to make it an issue. I often have sincere Christians say to me, Pastor Hollinsworth, I'm so convicted as I listen to your messages about the judgment seat. And I say, amen, that's good. And oftentimes, though, they'll follow up with this sentence. I don't know how I can ever qualify for a reward. You ever hear that, pastors? I've heard it lots of times. Now, wait a minute, that's bad. (laughs) You see, they arrived at the wrong conclusion. Preaching on the judgment seat is not supposed to make people think they can never measure up. It's supposed to motivate people so they can prepare to hear, well done. You know, if I, if I stood before you and I sort of had the attitude that, well, you need to prepare to meet Jesus at the judgment seat, but you're never going to measure up. Where's the hope in that? Who would come back to church and listen to that preacher? <laughs> That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there is great hope and that you can hear well done through the power of Jesus Christ. So often people will add to this discussion another sentence. Oh, but Pastor Hollinsworth, you don't know. I've done some really bad things in my past. You know what I always say to them? I have too. But i got to tell you, we serve a gracious and loving and merciful God. And he promises in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I remind them that the Apostle Paul did some pretty bad things too. And the follow-up to that usually is, yeah, but he wasn't saved at the time. And I say, well, I beg to differ with that. I take the position, maybe you don't. I take the position that I believe Saul of Tarsus was an Old Testament believer who had persecuted saints, even putting many of them to death. He was a murderer, he was a blasphemer, he was injurious to the cause of Christ. Do you know that believers can do those things and still be believers? But then the day came when Paul, Saul, understood Jesus as the Messiah that he had been looking for as an Old Testament believer on the road to Damascus. 
And once he came to grips with that truth, he sought God's forgiveness, and then he had to forget those things in his past and reach forth unto those things which are before. Paul, on one occasion, referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Let me ask you a question. How does the chief of sinners become rewarded at the judgment seat? By confessing those sins and forgetting them. See, Paul chose to forget his awful past and to move on to victory. And that's exactly what God wants you to do. Forget your awful past. It's covered under the blood of Jesus if you have confessed it and dealt with it. Reach forth to those things which are before. By the way, here's something wonderful to add to this discussion. Reaching forth, that phrase in the Greek means to stretch as in a race. Like when you're coming to the finish line, you're stretching, you're straining to reach the finish line. And so you, child of God, forget the past. Stretch forward in victory, straining to the finish line, serving the Lord with all your heart. Press toward the mark for the prize. As verse 12 says, apprehend that, seize that, for which you have been seized by Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, seized Paul, and he seizes each one of us to become sons unto glory. Now go after that prize. Seize it as God has seized you. What's the prize? It's the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Some interpret it as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, maybe referring to the out-resurrection. As we've seen earlier, it's not referring to the rapture, for this passage is about qualifying, whereas the rapture is automatic for all saints. This upward call is one and the same, I believe, as the out-resurrection. It is reward at the Bema. It is being sent to a glorious place of rulership in the New Jerusalem. That is the high calling. That is the upward call. That is the prize, the out-resurrection. Now, in closing, I want you to notice two words here that we're going to see in another parallel passage. The words here are apprehend, which I told you means to seize, and prize, the prize of the high calling. Now, on that note, we can leave Philippians, and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we will close the message. 1 Corinthians 9 is another place in the New Testament where the word prize is used. I want you to see this. We'll tie everything up and close the message. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. Now again, let me just park here and say, if it's really not possible to measure up, then why would he say, so run that ye may obtain? I mean, it would make no sense. Verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Like a shadow boxer, you know. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection that, lest, that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. All right, here, we have another athletic image, just as in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, you're stretching like a runner, pressing toward the mark, straining every nerve. Here, similar imagery. 
We have an Olympic runner trudging on in the long, grueling marathon of life. By the way, life is not a sprint, it's a long, grueling marathon. And this runner strains, he stretches to make it to the finish line without being disqualified. Interestingly, the word prize here in verse 24 is the same as prize in Philippians 3.14, where we started. I pressed toward the mark for the prize. In a first century athletic competition, the prize was just merely a laurel wreath that they would wear on their head, which to us seems so insignificant, but it was highly prized in the culture of the day and resulted in numerous fringe benefits for the winner. Maybe we could compare it loosely to Olympic winners today in our culture receiving all kinds of financial benefits by being able to promote products on television. You know, I was uh, sitting down to the breakfast table the other day and my, my daughter was eating Wheaties. And on the front of the box of Wheaties was an Olympic swimmer who had won all these gold medals. Well, she's making big bucks for that now. <laughs> so in the first century, the winner was highly recognized and often became wealthy, we're told in the history books. He or she would have carte blanche access to all the Olympic games and would sit in a prominent place next to the governor or even the Caesar. Do you see the parallel to the Christian life? Those who run to receive the prize of the out-resurrection, the prize of the upward call, are those who have been striving per for perfection and they've not been disqualified. In fact, the New American Standard translates the last word of verse 27, castaway, you see it there, as disqualified. That's what it means. And it translates, the New American Standard translates the word obtain at the end of verse 24, as win. That's what it means. And notice that the prize is incorruptible. It's eternal. As long as you are alive, as long as you are breathing, you are a contender in the race of life. Forget your past. Yeah, I know it's dirty, it's messy, isn't it for everybody? Forget it. Strain and reach forward to win the prize. You can win eternal rewards. Ah, but you must come to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You must reach perfection, not sinlessness, but full maturity as a servant of Jesus Christ. So how are you doing in the race of life today? Paul says, so run that you may obtain. Let's bow in prayer. Father, this is truly a very humbling text for us all. And Lord, it could be discouraging if we focus on our past. And that's what Satan would love for us to do. Spiral downward in defeat by focusing on the past and our failures. Oh, but our Lord Jesus wants to focus on the future. A whole different focus. He wants us to press toward the mark. I pray that would be the goal of every person here today, to win the prize of the high calling by pressing toward that mark, by getting to know you, Jesus. May that be our passion. May we go away from this conference changed for eternity, 
digesting some of these truths in a new, fresh way, getting excited about it, and depending upon you, dear Holy Spirit who lives within us, to enable us to accomplish these things by your grace. We look forward to what you're going to do in our lives. We look forward to getting back together a year from now and talking about what you've done, if you tarry. But we do cry out, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We thank you now for meeting with us, in Jesus' name, amen.